This morning our scripture reading will come from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, would read from verses 1 till verse 12. It reads, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemingly from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you of these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be re revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawlessness, lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is God's word. Friends, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, when we think about the difficulties of our current days and the confusion about the end times, we pray now that you would help us to know more clearly and as a result, help us to live more faithfully to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, the topic of the end times and the Antichrist have always been a topic of great interest to many people, ever since the first century all the way until now. Speculations abound. Movies have been made. Conversations around the kitchen table have been had. In the past 10 years, we've heard a plethora of accusations about the identity of the Antichrist. That figure that's in the Bible who deceives the masses and brings about destruction in some ways for humanity. I wonder if you can think of some of the theories that you've heard about the Antichrist. Hillary Clinton. Vladimir Putin. Barack Obama, Oprah Winfrey, of course, Donald Trump, or even these past couple of weeks, the name that keeps coming up again and again and again is Microsoft founder Bill Gates, and the list goes on. There's fascination about these things. There's wonder that marks our thoughts about the end of the world, but be careful, lest you be deceived. 
This passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is written to Christians who are in a very hard spot. They're being persecuted for their faith. They're experiencing a great amount of affliction. And we saw in chapter 1 last week that in light of the second coming of Christ, that even though they are experiencing all of this affliction, their good resolves would make Jesus glorified in them and them in him. And there's hope in his second coming. And here in chapter 2, you see from the very beginning that the topic of the second coming of Jesus is on the forefront of their minds again. And some of them have been deceived. And Paul wants to prepare them and to help them persevere. And so you see in verse 1 and 2, he he indicates for us that there's an importance of knowing what's going to happen. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and, and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word, or a letter seemingly from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. You see, there's speculations that are abounding about the end of the world just like there are today. And one of those speculations is that the day of the Lord has already come, meaning that Jesus has already returned. That if the pinnacle of human history is the moments of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection on the cross, that the end of human history, or drawing to an end, is found in the return of Jesus again. And word is getting out that they missed it. Jesus has already come back. And it's not surprising that speculations abound. I mean, when times are difficult, when unrest is the rule of the day, it's very natural for people, I think, to try to figure out what is happening by promoting a number of theories of what's going on. But you know, Paul makes it clear from the beginning, and it's so important for you to understand, that what you know informs how you live. That what you know really does inform how you live. There are a lot of people that would go through life living in willful ignorance to a variety of different things. Because willful ignorance is easy and it's comforting for the short term. It's hard work to know things sometimes. But the problem with willful ignorance is that although it's easy in the short term, in the long term it makes your life infinitely more difficult. And we see that the purpose of God in revealing himself to us, the purpose of God in revelation of the Bible, or even his son Jesus Christ, is that we would know something. And so by knowing that we would not quickly be shaken by the variety of theories that are out there. But you know, there's, there's a struggle or a difficulty in knowing some things, and particularly things about the end times. That's kind of the nature of eschatology. Eschatology, the word eschatology, is the study of last things, 
the study of end times. And this has always been an intriguing study and a challenging one for a variety of reasons. And there's a struggle attached to knowing here. It's a struggle because God uh, doesn't just say this is the book that's going to tell you all you need to know about the end times. That there's different sections of scripture throughout the Bible that show us elements of the things that are to come. It's difficult, eschatology, because God tells us some aspects of it. And some of those aspects are communicated in a clear and literal language. But other aspects about what he tells us are communicated through metaphors or word pictures so that we would be able to see and to feel and to try to grasp what's happening or will happen, but without all of the specificity and clarity of all the details. And then, of course, there's a struggle in knowing, but God doesn't tell us everything. He doesn't give us a precise roadmap with mile markers on it or easily discernible dates and times and names of people. And the reason why I think that God does that is because if he were to give us all of the details about the end times and the Antichrist and the second coming of Jesus, our human propensity would be to again and again try to manipulate the circumstances of life and history somehow to our advantage. Instead of what God is calling us to do, which is to exercise an ongoing dependence upon him and an abiding faith in him that lasts through times of ups and downs, lefts and rights, through times of comfort and through times of difficulty, all the way until the last days of our life. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of this law. God reveals some things. He doesn't reveal others. And when it comes to the end times and to the Antichrist, what he tells us is sufficient to help us be faithful. To know, to not be shaken about the coming of this Antichrist or the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And so let's focus on that a moment. We see in the Bible a presentation of the spirit of the Antichrist, many Antichrists, and the Antichrist. If you look at verse 3 of our text today, Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, meaning the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, it's unclear exactly what kind of rebellion Paul is talking about here that must happen before Jesus returns. Is it a rebellion that is political in nature? Is it a religious rebellion? Is it a more direct rebellion against God? He doesn't tell us, but it is going to be widespread in its effect. And, and it could be understood as any kind of rebellion against established authority. And probably directed toward God itself. And he says, at this time, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. 
It's almost universally recognized that this man of lawlessness is, is a term or a name for the Antichrist. This is that ominous figure that's talked about in a few other passages of Scripture. He's referenced today in movies. And there are endless curiosities about him and speculations and attempts to try to identify this person. And to help us understand who the Antichrist is and what the Antichrist does, I think it would be helpful to look at another passage of Scripture this morning as well. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want you to ask, ask you to flip just closer to the end of the, of the Scriptures. 1 John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you in front of your screen, then by all means you can follow along with the words on the screen. But here Paul talks about the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians, but John, the Apostle, also talks about the Antichrist in 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 4. And this is what he says. He says, children, starting in verse 18 of chapter 2, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all, that they all are not of us. And skipping down to verse 22. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now flip the page over to 1 John chapter 4. And you see just in verse 1 through 3 of chapter 4, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know that the Spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And so you see a picture. The spirit of the Antichrist many antichrists, and the antichrist. Let's look carefully for a moment at the word antichrist. Because understanding the word, the name, proves to be helpful to us. In the Greek, the, the prefix anti has two meanings. Of course, the first meaning is to be against. You are against something. And the second meaning has the meaning of replacing or supplanting something. And so there is a sense in which the Antichrist could be against Christ or replacing Christ or possibly both. That You don't need to choose necessarily between the two of them. And I think that's the case with the Antichrist. 
the one who is against Christ is also the one who seeks to replace or supplant Christ as the object of worship and the possessor of power. He is a false substitute to the Lord Jesus. Now, John says that there are many antichrists who are in the world. And chapter 2 of 1 John tells us that these are the ones who deny Jesus. Because they deny Jesus, they are therefore against him. And particularly in view are those not just who have sort of not chosen to recognize him, but those who maybe have chosen to more acutely reject him. There's a difference between a pagan and an apostate. A pagan is just somebody that goes about their life adopting the views of the world and paying really no mind to God or to Jesus. An apostate is one who at one point recognized or even confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Lord. But as time went on, has rejected that previous confession and turned away from him, thus showing that their faith was never really genuine in the first place. And it's these people that John is calling the, ment- the many antichrists. And it's important, I think, to pause for a moment right here and to consider the claim of verse 23. Because there are scores of people in the world today, and maybe even some of you who are watching now, who generally embrace the notion of God and want the benefits of God, but do not acknowledge their sin and their need for a Savior, Jesus, nor the Lordship of this Savior, Jesus. In short, there are many who want the notions and the benefits of God, but they ignore the details surrounding Jesus. And John says this very clearly in verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. But whoever confesses the Son also has the Father. That is to say that there's no benefit of God to you No relationship with God for you unless it comes through your confession that Jesus is the Son of God and is able to forgive you of your sins and you put your faith in him as your Savior. But if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if you put your faith in him, then you have all of the benefits of God. And they're bestowed upon you. Antichrists want God without Jesus. They want heaven without forgiveness. They want eternity without reckoning with the eternal one. And so watch out, John says, for those who would try to deceive you in this way. And that leads us to his description of the spirit of the Antichrist. 1 John 4, we read it a moment ago. And the same litmus test applies here. And I believe this is the same description in our text for today. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, when, when Paul says, The mystery of lawlessness is already 
at work. (laughs) The spirit of the Antichrist is in the world, and the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The same litmus test applies. The acceptance or rejection of Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. And in this instance, it is to try to decipher spirits. And so how is this spirit of the Antichrist already here? How is the mystery of lawlessness already at hand? Well, I think probably many of us sense it. (laughs) We feel it. We recognize instances of it. But chapter 5 of 1 John 4, I mean verse 5 of 1 John 4 tells us, it says, they, being the spirit of the Antichrist and the people who promote those things are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know that the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so we know, how is, how is the spirit of Antichrist in the world, how is the mystery of lawlessness in the world, how is the spirit of error, as he says, expressed? We're not surprised when we hear worldly people say that things like, you can choose your own destiny. Or whatever makes you feel the best is the thing that is right for you. Or unwanted pregnancies can be terminated without recourse. Or it doesn't matter what you do in this life. Just as long as you try to be a good person in some way, shape, or form. These are the types of things that so many others might say. And in many of those instances, they are anti Christ, and therefore from the world. We've talked about the many Antichrists, the spirit of the Antichrist, but now let's focus our attention back to the Antichrist himself. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, our text for today, gives us a description of The Antichrist is coming, it says in 1 John 2. 2 Thessalonians 2 says, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Listen to the characteristics of this man of lawlessness. Think about what it means to be lawless. It means, obviously, that he will subvert the laws. That he won't follow the rules. That this could be referring to human laws, I'm sure, in some ways. But I think it's most certainly referring to God's laws. And to say that he's going to be revealed is very interesting. The word for revealed there is the word epiphany. (laughs) It's the same word that we use to describe how Christ is going to be revealed. And these are the characteristics of this man of lawlessness. He's referred to as the son of destruction. Verse 4 says that he exalts himself against every God. Not just Jesus, but he proclaims himself to be God. He wants to be the object of human affection and worship. Verse 5 
verse 10, tells us that he will come with power and false miracles. He will be able to do incredible things. And the miracles as such will be supernatural in their nature. They won't be simply fake miracles. But rather they're fake or they're false miracles because they might appear originally to be empowered by God. But in fact, they are empowered by Satan. This man of lawlessness is described as a deceiver. And his deception is particularly powerful for those who do not love the truth. Those who are seeking to live and to find fulfillment and to go through life in a way that's apart from God. That's following their own, the beat of their own drum. And so what happens to this Antichrist? Well, it says in verse 6, look at it with me, that you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. He's being restrained at the moment, and there's some debate about who precisely is restraining him. Is it the person of the Holy Spirit that's restraining him? Is it Satan that's restraining him until Satan's purposes are brought to bear? Or is it God? And I think it's God that is restraining this man of lawlessness until the time that he sees fit in his sovereign purposes and providential power to release him. And then verse 8 tells us what will happen. It says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That it seems like his existence and his deception and his power are, are profound in their nature, but they're very, very short-lived. He's here one moment, he's gone the next. Jesus comes and he brings him to nothing because this one who pined for the worship of all of creation is shown as the fraud that he really is in light of the returning king of kings and lord of lords. And so you have a description of this man of lawlessness and a passage in the middle of this epistle that is almost completely descriptive in its nature. He doesn't necessarily tell them that he wants them to do anything in light of this. At least not right here. But I think there are a number of applications that we can draw from this passage. And I think that the core application is this. Why does he tell them? He tells them because they might have to endure tribulation. He tells us because you might have to endure suffering, affliction, and tribulation. And he wants you to be prepared. Because preparation helps you persevere. 
Preparation helps you persevere. And perseverance makes you prepared for the Antichrist. Let me say that again. Preparation helps you persevere, but perseverance makes you prepared for suffering, for affliction, for the end, and even for the Antichrist. And so, how do we prepare and how do we persevere? Well, a number of implications for us. And the first one is very simply this. Keep your eyes on Christ. If you want to be prepared for suffering and difficulty, then keep your eyes on Christ right now and every day. And then you will not be distracted by the things that are over here. And you will not be attracted to the things that are over here. Lest you be one of the ones who are deceived. I think about teaching my kids how to swim. Many of you have done that as well. And and how the idea of making uh, a lap all the way across the pool is really daunting when you are three feet four inches tall. It seems like miles away. But after you know that they have the sufficient skill and physical strength to do it, what do you do? You go stand on the other end of that pool and you say, keep looking at me. Keep watching me. And if you keep watching me, you will make it from this end all the way to the finish at that end. Here's another example. I mean, I think about uh, the struggle that many people have in this world with being faithful to their spouse. And there's a lot of attractive people out there. There's a lot of interesting people out there. And for the vast majority of people, there's a lot of opportunity to develop emotional connections or physical connections with people who aren't your spouse in a very unhealthy and ungodly way. But how do you ensure that your marriage lasts for the long run? There's a lot of ways, but one of them is just very plainly, you keep your eyes on your spouse. (laughs) When you keep your eyes on her or him, if you're a woman, then I don't see so clearly the attractiveness of this person over here because my wife is incredibly beautiful to me. And I'm not tempted nearly as much to go wandering over here because I'm keeping my eyes on her. When you keep your eyes on Christ, you are not distracted to follow antichrists. (laughs) And there's something else here about keeping your eyes on Christ, and that is uh, something that Pastor Kyle prayed for us this morning in his prayer, that It's not always sinful or bad things that necessarily are going to distract you from keeping your eyes on Christ in this life. There are a lot of good or neutral things that might distract you from keeping your eyes on the Lord Jesus directly. Uh, Your kids and their development and their sports programs. Uh, Your extracurricular activities and your hobbies. Your desire for vacation. A variety of other things can come in and they're good. Your job even to an extent. But for the Christian to keep your eyes on Christ and, and 
first and foremost be focused on him and let the other things fall into their appropriate place is a way that you prepare for suffering, difficulty, and even the Antichrist. Here's another uh, point of preparation and perseverance. And that is, look at your life in terms of long-term preparation. Look at your life in terms of patterns and seasons of growth. I think that today, and particularly in our culture, we have so many people that expect to arrive before they've gone through the paces. But you know, a world-class athlete does not know necessarily that they're going to be great when they're on the basketball court when they're 12 years old. Some of them do. They're already 6'6 and, and doing crazy things. But the vast majority of them have practice and games and growth and opportunity and struggle and failure and success before they become the athlete that you see on TV today. Likewise, the great leaders of the world do not start out as leaders. They have not arrived as being major influencers of people. They've trained They've grown. They've led in small contexts. They've led in medium contexts. They lead in large contexts. And then they might lead in small contexts again. But they're ever growing and preparing and working and persevering. And that is the process by which they become a great leader. No great thinker is born with all knowledge, except for Jesus. That they go to school, they read books, they study, and as time goes on, they're engaging in this work of preparation, and they're ever expanding in their ability to process and synthesize information. They all prepare, and they all prepare over a long amount of time, through a variety of opportunities, they become substantial in what they're doing. Christian, you are not born and born again to all of a sudden believe that you can handle every situation immediately. That we're still weak. <laughs> that we're still tempted. That we still live in earthen vessels. Jars of clay. <laughs> but if you prepare, if you look at your life day in and day out, week in and week out, as not only nourishing for what's happening right now, but also preparing for the future, then as the future gets difficult, you will not waver. And that leads us to another practical application. How do we live in the midst of this? How do we prepare? How do we persevere? Well, verses 10 and 11 tell us that those who refuse to love the truth, those are the ones who will be deceived. Those who refuse to love the truth, they, they don't want to recognize the way things really are. They don't want to recognize reality. I'm sure that you've seen it before. The child who, when things get scary for her, or when she gets upset, or when she just doesn't like what's happening because she's not getting her way, she closes her eyes and cowers in hopes that when she opens her eyes again, 
the whole situation will have magically resolved itself and things will be the way that she wants it to be again. Sadly, some adults go through life like that as well. Experiencing financial stress, close your eyes, swipe the card again, hope for the best. Your marriage is difficult, close your eyes, pretend like nothing is wrong and maybe the tension will dissipate and all of a sudden your affections will be rekindled. Maybe you don't like something that God says in his word and it's hard for you and, you, and, and, and you're bristling against it. Well, if you just close your eyes and go about your business like you were before, doing the things that you think are right and the things that you want to do, and following the things that the culture want you to say instead of God's word, well, then maybe things will be okay. <laughs> but that is a description of someone who does not love the truth. Former Maryland poet laureate Lucille Clifton wrote a poem one time in which she pictures herself trying to keep her eyes closed, ignoring the truth. But she finishes the poem with a voice telling her, you might as well answer the door, my child. The truth is furiously knocking. When you close your eyes and you just hope for the best instead of pursuing truth, you set yourself up to be deceived. You set yourself up to be deceived by the deceiver. But preparation helps you pr persevere, and perseverance makes you prepared for difficult times, for suffering, and even for the Antichrist. Here's a couple more implications for you. Don't give way to evil in your life. Perpetual sin in your life means that when evil presents itself, you actually become attracted to it instead of repelled to it. Adopting cultural evils and accepting them as the norm is another way of closing your eyes and pretending it's going to be okay. Recognize the difference between being watchful and being speculative. Watchfulness is something that you want to have, but speculation, especially as it revolves the Antichrist and end times, is something that's not particularly helpful. Speculation means that you are feeding into the desire to figure it all out. The one to be right about the details that God keeps hidden. Be the first one to report the news. And if your motivation to be identifying the Antichrist is to be on the leading edge of this kind of knowledge, then you're missing the reason why Paul is writing this letter. If you are the one that's trying to figure out if Bill Gates really is the Antichrist because he's talking about digital identification of vaccinations, then, then you're engaged in some fodder, some speculation, but you're missing the point. Paul wants you to be dependent on God no matter who that person is. Watchfulness comes with being prepared. And the watchful person has the motives of truth. And they see the bigger picture. So be watchful. Don't be speculative. And lastly, rest in hope. Rest in hope that Jesus is coming back 
that God's promise are applied to you directly. And as those promises are applied to you, that you can endure whatever affliction, tribulation, or even antichrists that come. I want to close this morning with a story uh, from the early 1900s. In 1911, a man named uh, Roland Amundsen became the first person in the world to successfully have an expedition to the South Pole, some of the most treacherous places on earth. Amundsen was also famous for his incredible commitment to prepare for this expedition. While he was in his late 20s, he traveled from Norway to Spain for a two-month sailing trip to earn his master's certificate. That was in the year 1899. He had a nearly 2,000-mile journey ahead of him at one point. How did he make the journey? By carriage? By horse? By ship? By rail? No, he, just, he chose to travel by bicycle as part of his endurance training. Amundsen then experimented with eating raw dolphin meat to determine its usefulness as an energy supply. Because after all, he reasoned that someday he might be shipwrecked in the South Pole, finding himself surrounded by dolphins, so he might as well know if he could eat one. <laughs> and all of this was part of Amundsen's years of building a foundation for his quest, training his body, learning as much as possible from practical experiences about what actually worked. The man made a pilgrimage to be with the Eskimos, to, weigh, to learn the way that they worked in polar conditions, to spend time with them, to even adopt their clothing and how they work in ice and cold and snow and wind. He learned how to use dogs to pull sleds. He saw how they never hurried and they moved slowly as not to perspire and have that perspiration turn into ice and sub-zero temperatures. He's adopted their clothing to keep him protected. He systematically practi practiced the Eskimo methods and trained. He prepared himself for every conceivable situation that he might encounter en route to the South Pole. Amundsen's philosophy was this. You don't wait until you're in an unexpected storm to discover that you need strength and endurance. You don't wait until you're shipwrecked to determine if you can eat a raw dolphin. You don't wait until you're on the Antarctic journey to become a superb skier or dog handler. You prepare. You prepare with intensity. All of the time. So that when conditions turn against you, you can draw from a deep reservoir of strength. And equally, you prepare so that when conditions turn in your favor, you can strike hard. God tells us about some of the end times so that we can prepare. Because preparation helps you persevere. And perseverance makes you prepared. It makes you prepared for suffering, for affliction, for difficulty, and even for the Antichrist. And so my friends, the encouragement today is keep working, keep striving, 
keep loving, keep being faithful, and in the midst of that all, keep preparing. Let's pray together. Father, help us to not be so short-sighted, but to give us the long view. To know the things you want us to know. And to walk into those realities as they unfold. As people who are strong. With a deep reservoir of strength. And ready for however you would see fit for us to experience this life. We know you are near. We know that you empower us. We know that you love us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.